Hey, well, uh, man, it is, it's really an honor to get to be here and be a part of a place where God's word's taken seriously and where we have men who are leading us with genuine hearts that want this to be a place that is reflective of who God has called the church to be. And so um, the elders that we have love you. Um, they desire for your best and our flourishing. And I just could not feel more honored to just get to be a small part of what God is doing in our community. Community. And so listen, as we, as we do that, we have been in this series in the book of 1 Peter. I just want to prepare our hearts a little bit today. There's going to be probably multiple times as we dig into this section of 1 Peter that you're going to feel offended, um, angry, and like maybe we shouldn't listen to what God says. And so as we encounter some of those barriers, here's just the instruction I want to give us. Okay, aren't you glad you came this morning? Uh, because, man, I knew we should have gone out of town. Terrible week to be here. <laughs> we, we, we want to be attentive to what God is saying. We want to be attentive to what God is not saying. We want to separate the way that some of these scriptures have been abused in the past with the context that they were originally written. And we want to be a people that are faithfully obedient to God, even when he calls us to do things that are difficult. Can we, can we make that deal with each other this morning? So here's the question that we want to answer. Um, I'm going to pull the curtain back and I'm just going to go get this. So if you're watching online, I'm still here. Um, okay, just forgot to get this earlier. Um, we want to answer the question, in a season culturally of uncertainty in which God has called us to respond with a joy birthed out of what Jesus has done, how do we engage in an uncertain world? How do we do that? And so um, for me, my story of understanding how to engage a sinful world is a little bit of an evolution. I grew up in a faith tradition, a denomination. Um, I was dedicated as a child, so you already maybe can guess um, which denomination that might be and which one it might not be. I was dedicated as a child and grew up in the church from a very early age, felt called to ministry at the age of 15. And so um, early on, for me, it was a very conservative, um, very conservative church in Texas. And I kind of was brought up around this ethos. And I don't know that anybody ever explicitly said this. But it was kind of this ethos of the world is bad and scary. We, we kind of need to build our own version that's safe and sanitary. So like I worked in family Christian stores in high school, um, which was a really genuine expression of that culture. And so, you know, we didn't trust the world's celebrities and music. So we had post-Growing Pains, Kurt Cameron, and For Him instead of NSYNC. Do you guys, any For Him fans in the room? Okay. There's a homeschool joke I'm not going to tell right now. And so... <laughs> You're welcome for me taking the high road there. And so listen, that was, that was the way I saw the world. And so anything that wasn't of church, I, I was kind of suspicious of and didn't want. And so th there's that reflex I had of we just don't engage culture. Um, it's sinful and dirty and you might catch it. Then I went to college. I went to a private Christian school in the Dallas area. And as I did that, I started to play hockey. And the guys I played hockey with um, were my first foray outside the Christian bubble, if you will. And I know this is the South, so you may not be familiar with culturally um, what it's like in a dressing room when you play hockey. It's very different than the church. And so it was, it was a group of people who were not believers. And it was the first time I had really had an extended exposure around people that didn't know the Lord and had never really been in church. There were people from Sweden. There were people from Russia. There were people from Canada. And so just a broad diversity, um, both in kind of how they grew up and where they grew up. And, and I learned that, man, these people aren't scary. 
I kind of like these people. These people are more fun than church people, right? And so like there is this evolution that happened in me where I kind of rebelled maybe even a little bit to this, let's build the wall and get away from culture and probably swung the pendulum a bit too far into let's just enjoy culture. And those seem to be the two poles that we bounce back and forth between as a church in this country is engagement um, to the point of maybe disobedience or hey, this is scary, we're out. What we want to do is we want to go to Scripture and see how God has called us to engage a society that is uncertain and increasingly different and plural in its belief and understanding of authority. And so if you have your Bibles, here, here's the theme that we're going to see today. We're going to see the, how, do we, how do we engage our posture towards culture should be to reflect the goodness of God. As a church, the theme of this passage is that as Christians, as a church, as a community, we should be building a posture towards society where we are clearly reflecting the goodness of God to a world that does not know it. When we engage the world, the government, people, we should be engaging in a way that the goodness of God is obvious through our hearts, through our actions, and through our disposition. That's the foundation that we're building. And so what Peter's going to do is zoom in on what that looks like. So we're going to continue in 1 Peter. We're in chapter 2. We're in verse 13. All right, let's pick it up. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor is supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. See, you're already out. Like we made it one verse and you're like, uh-uh, uh-uh. Listen, that's a challenge for us because as Americans, we don't do that. Like we got here by overthrowing the government, right? And listen, I grew up in Texas. We're better at it than everybody else. We can be a country anytime we want again. Just ask us, we'll tell you. We've done it alone once. We'll do it again. Come and take it. We, we, we don't resonate well with this idea because we are very comfortable with not being subject to governments that we don't like. Even if they're foreign governments that are maybe a little bit unfriendly to our international interests, we'll overthrow them too. We have plans. We tried it with a cigar once. It didn't go well, but we'll do it. And so being subject to the government makes no sense at all to us. So even as you hear that, something in you is somebody that grew up in this country is like, this doesn't make sense because if the government's bad, we just get rid of it, Right? Like, we get to do that. And so this is one of those places we need to bookmark this and come back to it because there's a very specific context that this is being written to. We're going to have to do some work with the minds that God has blessed us with and how we apply this to our situation because it just looked different for the people that received this letter. So let's, let's keep going for a second. Um, stick with it, I promise. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. So he's building this metric for how we can look at society and engage it. And so let's talk about who this letter was written to. The Christians that were being written to in this letter were a significant minority in the area that they lived in. I don't mean ethnically, but I mean like how they believed in the way they did life. There were no other Christians yet. This was early on, early church. This was a tiny movement of people 
with a brand new understanding of who God was and what it meant to worship him in a place where no one else thought and believed that way, that they were experiencing persecution, they were ostracized, and also I might add, it was a political environment that had a different type of civil discourse than we do. It went something like this. Hey, I disagree with your government. Oh, sir, come right this way. We're gonna put you in prison and kill you. That was what it looked like to have social discourse in the Roman Empire. There was not room for discussion or democracy, right? And so it's interesting that he's writing to these Christians and explaining to them how they should interact with a government that they had little to know say in. And why I mean little to know, it's actually just no, okay? And so that's different for us. We live in a time where we have a society that has given us space to have discourse. We can vote, we can protest, we can tell people what we think on social media now. It seems like that was a good idea. And so there's all of these ways that society has changed. Here's another nuance. In our context, Christianity is not a cultural minority. We're actually kind of the majority, right? And so even if it's not fully Christian, we'll put that label on quite a bit as Westerners. And we have for let's just call it 600 years or so, right? Like just everything of the West has been Christian. And so for us to really read this, we need to get our minds around the place that these people were in. How are they supposed to engage a society that they had no say over? How are they supposed to engage a society that didn't understand what they believed? Like they thought they were cannibals. Remember, like there were people that heard Christians talk about communion. They're like, oh, they eat blood and um, they, they drink blood and eat flesh. Like they're crazy. So people had no understanding of who they were. They had no understanding of what they believed. How they interacted and conducted themselves were going to very powerfully illustrate two truths about the church. What they believed and what their purpose was. And so he says, listen, God didn't call you to overthrow the Roman government. And this was a tension that existed in God's people for a while in the Old Testament, right? The reason that Jesus was so hard for, for the Jews to wrap their minds around was because they had this expectation of a military Messiah that was going to come back and restore the Davidic kingdom, right? Even in the Old Testament, they had this problem where they saw deliverance as primary and an instrument that was going to be accomplished through the government. Do you remember the constant tension that God's people had? Anytime they were threatened, God said, listen, you can trust me or you can trust man in the military. You can trust me, you don't need the stuff. And God's people consistently said, we want the stuff, right? They consistently look for salvation from the government or the military. And God said, that's not really what I'm trying to accomplish. I want you to trust me. There's a, there's a common theme that, that Peter is writing to these people about, that God has called you to trust him. It's easier when they didn't have a choice. And so when he's calling them to honor the emperor, here's what he's not calling them to do. This is where we get our backs up a little bit. He's not calling them to sin. He's not calling them to be disobedient to God. And he's not calling them to abandon their faith. And, and we see that really clearly. Look at what it says here at the end. He gives four commands. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. So really clearly, he puts up some guardrails. If they're going to fear God, they are not going to honor the emperor at the expense of their obedience. And as Christians now, that's a lot of our reflex where we get our backs up. What if the government's bad? Peter's saying, no, 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 listen, nobody's telling you to disobey God. That's not what this means. It's right there. It says, fear the Lord. It also says, love the brotherhood. So anything that the government would command them to do that would cause them to not love one another— does not fit into this metric, right? Can we reason that together? He's not calling anyone to be disobedient. 
Actually, if you read this, this is an incredibly subversive sentence because he says, honor everyone, and he says, honor the emperor. What he just did there grammatically that's kind of difficult to see through our lens is he made the emperor the same as, as humans. The reason that was subversive, because in the Roman Empire, there was this law that said the emperor was divine. Now, whether the emperors actually believed they were gods or if this was just a tool they used is up for some debate, but the law of the land was the emperor is God. Peter just said, treat him like anybody else. Honor and respect him. That's pretty subversive. He, he could have been killed for that legally, okay? And so here's what we know he's not saying. Discard your faith and compromise your integrity of your theology to make the government happy. Not what this says. Here's what it does say, though. It does say that we should do good. Jump back up a little bit here. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The reason that it mattered that they honored the emperor by seeking the good of society was because it reflected the goodness of God. The foolish people he's talking about are the people that painted Christians as being bad for society. They made claims that they believed things that the church didn't believe and that they were out to get people. And, and Peter's saying, listen, as we engage society with this new way of thinking, we need to be careful that we don't confuse people. He said, do good to silence ignorant people. We don't silence ignorant people by doing good in our culture, right? We silence them by telling them that they're ignorant and then explaining to them why. And then all of the other people that agree with us like the posts on social media and all the other people that disagree just hide it. It's been incredibly effective, hasn't it? So how do we engage culture by showing society that we wanna do good? Well, listen, I think there's three types of good that we wanna do. We, we wanna do good works. In society, And this isn't a new idea. Jeremiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. As God's people were being exiled, he tells them this. He says, seek the good of the city God sent you to. It is okay for us to seek the good of society. God says we actually should seek the good of society. Well, are you saying that Christians shouldn't engage in politics? No, no, no. This actually says the opposite. Because listen, there was not a pathway of political engagement for people in the Roman Empire. That's not the time we live in. There actually is a pathway for us to engage our society. We have this tool and this instrument in democracy where we can seek the good of society. And as Christians, we're free to do that. But look at the guardrails. Love God, love people, and honor everyone. If you cannot engage politically while fearing God and loving other people, then you shouldn't engage politically. Like if you can't do it while still being obedient to God, please don't. Because again, listen, we wanna silence ignorant people by doing good. Christians engaging society in a way that we confuse people about what it means to know God does not silence ignorance. It actually amplifies it. Right now, by and large, the evangelical Protestant church, not known for being loving, accepting people. Here's why that's a problem. Because God is a loving God that accepts us. And we're gonna talk about how he does that at the end. So don't worry, this isn't getting woke, okay? But God is a loving and accepting God. If we're not reflecting the goodness of God to the world around us, then we're engaging politics the wrong way. We're not seeking the good of society. So how do we seek the good of society then? Listen, through, through generosity and service, through finding ways that human flourishing isn't happening the way it should and giving to those arenas. So whether that's education, whether that's feeding the hungry, whether that's helping the oppressed, whether that's foster care, like there's a million different ways to do that. You'll notice he doesn't give them a detailed outline because this is compatible in any society anywhere in the world. As a church, are we people that are seeking the flourishing of the people around us in our community? Are we engaging in good public works? It's okay for us to engage society. We are free to do that as slaves of God. 
We should be engaging Roswell. We should be engaging Northern Atlanta. We should be engaging the area, seeking the good. We also should be building good public relationships. It's okay for us to have relationships outside the church. We actually should be doing that. But listen, as we do it, what do we want to do? We want to do good. We don't want to use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. We want to do good. So as you are making relationships with people outside the church, are you reflecting the goodness of God? It doesn't say reflect the goodness of God to the people that agree with you. It says all men we should honor. In the relationships you're building at work, with your boss, with your neighbors, with your kids' teachers, with your coach, with your peers in the classroom, students. Are you reflecting the goodness of God in public relationships? It's okay for us to have relationships with non-believers. That is an opportunity for us to reflect the goodness of God. Here's the last one is a good public reputation. The reputation of the church was actually incredibly important to the authors of the New Testament because it was the first understanding people had of the gospel. It's a little bit more of a challenge for us in some ways because as Christianity kind of became institutionalized post-Constantine, there's all of these different wrinkles that have happened over time that have given people all of these sort of perceptions of the church and some of them we're not responsible for, right? Like we're just not because they started 200 years ago. And so we have a little bit more baggage to overcome in our context. But listen, a good public reputation for the church is really important. Why? Because our public reputation is going to communicate something of the goodness of God. Are we known as people that are gonna love somebody that's hurting? Are we known as people that are generous? Are we known as people that are sacrificial? Are we known as people that love one another? Our posture towards society should reflect the goodness of God and our reputation is going to be a key element of how we do that. So how we conduct ourselves matters. And listen, that doesn't mean we have to be perfect, but it means we need to be thoughtful about it, right? So like when I'm driving down the road and someone's actually going the speed limit, I can't honk at them when I go around them. I just pass them silently, right? And so there's all of the, I'm kind of kidding, but there's all of these different opportunities that you have during the week to make the reputation of Jesus Christ and his church known. How are you doing that? Are you taking that seriously? Because as Christians, our posture is gonna communicate a lot about who God is. We've gotta be mindful of that. Okay, so how's your posture towards society? Are, are you kind of retreating? Are you attacking? Are you disconnecting? Like, what does it look like for you? We wanna prayerfully weigh out how we can achieve the public good in the place that God has us. It's fine to use politics as an instrument. It's fine. He just says there's very clear ways to do that. Engage politically, engage socially, do those, but do them in obedience to God where you're loving people, right? Can we get on board with that? So here's, here's the second place that he calls us to do this because that sounds like a good plan until something goes wrong. What about when society doesn't love us back? What about when we're wronged? What about when we're mistreated? What about when there's injustice? What do we do? Great question. We should reflect the goodness of God by giving grace to those who do injustice to us. When people do injustice, we reflect the goodness of God by showing them grace. People are going to hurt you. It's gonna happen. Let's keep reading. This is gonna be a tricky one, so stay with me for a little bit. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? He's basically saying, look, when you get punished and, and you kind of take that, everyone does that. You got what you deserve. He says, but 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, so let's stop for a minute because this is really difficult. We don't have a context for this because that idea of being a servant or a slave, just we don't have that right now. And so we need to do a couple of different things as we approach this. And one of them is to understand who he's talking to. Um, Some translations have slaves, some have servants. In Wayne Grudem's commentary on this, he says that the challenge that we have in understanding this is we instantly read slave through the lens of the slavery we had in our country. He said it's not exactly one-to-one what they had in the Roman Empire. Okay, he says it wasn't ethnically driven. He said that the living conditions of some in slavery were actually pretty good. And manumission or being freed as a slave was a little bit easier to accomplish in first century Rome than it was in 19th century America. He also said that there's this this challenge or this wrinkle and that a lot of people who were slaves were born into it. And so it's not the slavery that we understand in our history. Now, here's the back end of that. It doesn't mean it was good. It doesn't mean that it was just either. And so it wasn't American slavery, but it also wasn't justice. It also wasn't kind, it wasn't loving. And so the people that were slaves in Rome were considered property. They wouldn't have been addressed or talked to. If they escaped or misbehaved, they could be beaten or killed because they were considered the property of the one that owned them. This wasn't a just system, it was just a different system. And so the way he describes it is that the word servant is probably not strong enough, but the word slave as we as Americans understand it probably Probably is too strong. So it's something in between those two poles that we're trying to engage here. And so the system that he's talking to is unjust. It's not right. How can he be telling these people to be subject to the masters, whether they're good or bad, when slavery is wrong? And we understand that slavery is wrong. What do we do with that? So again, let's remember who he's talking to. If you were an enslaved person in first century Rome, there was not a way that you could change your condition. There just wasn't. In fact, if you know your Roman history, there's a massive slave revolt a couple hundred years before this, and it ended with literally miles of slaves that revolted being crucified along the sides of the road. So as you were walking into the city, literally for days, you would walk by dead bodies of slaves that revolted. There was not a mechanism to change society in the way that you and I understand it today. And so as Peter is writing to these people, they have no hope of changing their earthly condition. They just don't. And so he's telling them, look, our goal is not to change society because it's not going to happen. Our goal is actually bigger than that. We're going to have a rebellion against darkness through obedience and goodness. We just sang it, right? Like goodness overcomes evil. We heard it in our reading from Romans. We overcome evil with good. So what he's talking about here is not scripture saying slavery is okay. This is not scripture saying if you're being abused, you shouldn't say anything about it and it's a sin to fix it. That's not what this means. Unfortunately, this is a scripture that's been used to justify slavery in our country. It's been used to cover up abuse in the church. It's been used to objectify and keep women in dangerous situations and all of those applications are evil and not what this says. And as you saw earlier, we're an elder-led church with men committed to this being a safe place where abuse is not tolerated. That is absolutely not what this says, but it does call us to something difficult and uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because when we're treated unjustly, there's a reflex in us to find justice. And that's just not the first call he gives these people. Here's a silly example this week. So 
Um, we got our final bill from our utility company, um, our water company in Indiana, and they are alleging that we used 86,000 gallons of water the last month we lived in the home. Um, if you're not a math person, I'm not, I'm not either. I had to look this up. That's roughly eight to 10 full-size swimming pools. I don't know where all this water went. I was there the whole time. If my legs are sore from a bike ride, I might take a hot bath. I didn't fill up 10 swimming pools. So I had to get on the phone. In my response to this injustice, my heart was not to endure the extortionate practices of my utility company. My heart was to right a wrong. And Michelle at customer service did not experience the goodness of God for me. I wasn't like angry, but I was firm. Michelle, I'm not paying this. Anyways, all that to say, silly example, what's my reflex in that moment? It's not to be obedient to the Lord. It's not to reflect the goodness of God to those who have wronged me. It's to get justice for myself. Justice isn't bad, and it's okay to seek justice, but listen to what this says. This says, for it is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. When you, do good, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, and it's a gracious thing. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So how do we endure suffering well? And in a lot of ways, listen, the best parallel to this when we're having this conversation is probably like employer and employee. Again, it's not perfect because we live in a very different society, but it's the closest metric that we can get. This really isn't talking about domestic issues, and this really isn't talking about church issues. The, the narrow scope of this specific passage for us is best played out in an employer employee situation. That's just the best that we can do. Now, you can apply these principles in any relationship, right? But the actual passage for us is best understood through that lens. So when people treat you unjustly, how do you respond? Well, what does it mean to endure it graciously? I, I really think what we can see from scripture is there's three different ways that we do that. One is by forgiving people. One of the ways that we endure unjust treatment is by making sure that we forgive those who wronged us. We know that's what we're called to do. Pray for our enemies, love our enemies, bless those who persecute us. So we know as Christians, we reflect the goodness of God by forgiving people when they've wronged us. Here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that you can't set healthy boundaries. That doesn't mean where abuse or harassment's happening in a workplace that you don't go to HR or an attorney. That doesn't mean that you don't call, that, that's not what this says. It's never disobeying God for you to set good boundaries and protect yourself and your family. It is disobeying God if we allow our hearts to be hardened and we hate and we don't forgive. And that's difficult when we've been wronged. And God understands that. And you're not gonna be perfect at this because no one is. And we're gonna talk about why that's okay here in just a second. But listen, when we encounter injustice, we have to be prepared to forgive people. We have to be prepared to forgive people. Here's a second way that we deal with this is we endure it over time. And, and again, that doesn't mean you stay in abusive. Here's what it means. We continue to be faithful and obedient even when people mistreat us. And so to, again, to zoom out a little bit to the context of this, these people, these Christians who are largely, by the way, lower class people in the societal makeup of the time, the fact that they're being addressed at all in scripture, by the way, is pretty progressive because you generally wouldn't speak to or acknowledge the presence of a servant, slave, whatever word you want to use. So the fact that they're even being addressed is 
shocking. And it's a picture of how God lifts up the lowly. And so when these people who were very, very low in the value system that society had ranked people in were being addressed, what Peter is telling them is, listen, when you are mistreated, when you are mistreated in a place that does not hold your values, don't let it stop you from following Christ and being obedient to the example that he set. Well, what's the obedient example of Jesus Christ? He came with a purpose. He was obedient to the Lord and he suffered for things that he didn't do. We should not be surprised when we're treated unjustly by a broken and sinful world. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Oh my gosh, I can't believe these people that have not been changed and transformed by the gospel are treating me badly. Why would that shock us? Their eyes haven't been opened to the truth of who Jesus is and, and their hearts have not been made new. Of course, they treat us unjustly. The world is broken and unjust. That's why we need a savior, right? He says, don't be surprised when that happens and don't let it discourage you from following Jesus. These people had a very, very difficult situation. They were a minority with no power in a position where they could be constantly mistreated, constantly mistreated with no consequence. He says, don't let that exhaust you and turn your back on the Lord. A lot of times when injustice hits us, we say, God, are you real? Is this indicative that you don't care about me? Is, is this all a waste of time? Am I praying to just a ceiling? Are you really there? Because if you were really there, why would you be letting this happen? Peter knows this is the state of their hearts because it's also not that different from the state of Peter's. One of the ways that this has been abused by the church and by authorities is that churches and authorities saying, you better submit to me. Keep in mind, this is not someone in a position of authority telling people under him to submit to him. This is someone who is a fellow vulnerable person with no social standing saying, we should submit to these people in a way that communicates the goodness of God and how we forgive and how we're obedient. The reason that this has gone sideways is that as the church gained power, and listen, anytime the church has gotten in bed with politics or, or worldly definitions of what it means to be in charge, it's always gotten weird, like every single time. And so where this has been abused in a church context is people in charge of a church are saying, you submit to me because scripture says so. Oh, that's interesting because scripture also has some things to say to people running the church as to how they should treat people and be held accountable for it. This is assuming that the people they're submitting to don't know Jesus and are evil. There's a whole different set of instructions for how Christians relate to one another, right? And it's love and sacrifice and accountability when that doesn't happen. And so we need to be careful where we've seen this abused to remember that this was not someone in a position of authority lording it over the people that he's writing this letter to. These were people who were suffering together for the sake of the gospel, saying we cannot let our suffering stop us from being obedient. We can't get tired of worshiping God. We can't get tired of sacrificing for the people around us. And it's hard and it's exhausting. And even reading this, like, man, how do we do that? Well, let's get to the most important part of this because God's given us a difficult call here, right? We're supposed to reflect the goodness of God by doing good in society. And we're supposed to reflect the goodness of God by showing grace to those who hurt us. How do we do that? How do we engage a society that is starting to maybe not like us as much as it did 50 years ago when we had a little bit more um, cultural authority, if you will? How can we be in a place where in our brokenness, we can't imagine forgiving the people that have hurt us and taken advantage of us? Well, listen, this is why we're here. The last part of this is why we're here. Because the last piece that we have to put this puzzle together with is that we can do this because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The only way that we as a church, that we as individuals, that we as families are going to reflect the goodness of God 
is through what Jesus Christ has done for us. And this is why he goes back to this. This doesn't end with, now here's 10 ways to do this. Look at where he ends this exhortation. He had just talked to them about Christ's suffering for them. He says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the only hope that we have in an uncertain world that we're called to engage, in an uncertain world that we want to share the gospel in, in our hurt and our brokenness where we can't imagine forgiving people that have acted unjustly towards us, we have a Savior who died on the cross for our sins and took the punishment that we deserved. So two things could happen. Did you see him? So that you could die to sin and live to righteousness, and so our wounds could be healed. Man, how can I begin to forgive people? We have a Savior who died so our wounds could be healed. As a product of our salvation, we have a God who has put the Holy Spirit in us and he's working to heal our hearts. And it doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen with a light switch, but it happens. We have this opportunity to know a God who heals us where we've been broken. Listen, God does not want us to be hurt by a world that is broken. God wants to heal us in the aftermath of a world that is really messed up. And so through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have this hope that our wounds will be healed. Whether those wounds were self-inflicted or inflicted by a broken world, when we come and we celebrate communion, we're remembering and reminding ourselves that we have a God who has healed us. One of the beautiful ways that God heals us, by the way, is in community. One of the beautiful ways that healing happens when you follow Christ is you're brought into a place where there's people that love you, where there's people that understand what you've been through and where there's people that can walk alongside you and show you the grace of God in that healing. And so listen, as God is calling you to follow him, as he's working to heal you, that's gonna happen in all of these different ways. We know that God's spirit works in us and changes us. We also know that as a body, we all have these different functions to love one another. So there's people that can help us through acts of service. There's people that have specifically been wired and gifted by the way as biblical counselors with education in that. Well, we should take advantage of them because that's God using the body of Christ to heal those that have been hurt by sin. And so one of the ways that God heals us is by putting us in the context of a local church. And so how do we find healing and hope? Well, we engage community in the local church. That's why it's good that we're together. Look at the other byproduct of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We've died to sin and can live in righteousness. We begin to have a hunger for the things of God. So we have a hunger to love the people that hate us. We have a hunger to see good come to the community that we've been placed in. We have a hunger for people to know the goodness of God. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and made us new. That's where it comes from. That's it. That's why the end of this section is so powerful because he calls us to do two really impossible things. He calls us to reflect the goodness of God to a broken world that's uninterested, and he calls us to forgive the people that hurt us. We can't do that on our own. There is no amount of self-help and good behavior and good sermons and good music. Like we could put a smoke machine in here. It would still be hard for you. Somebody's like, don't you dare. I'm gonna get emails on that one. Um, don't you dare. <laughs> 
It doesn't matter how good the show is here. We can't change ourselves. That only happens through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And listen, on the other side of that, we begin to experience the grace of God in a new way. And we begin to see a broken, uncertain world as a place for us to spread the goodness of God. But the good news is it's all centered on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we prepare to come to him today, we can do that without guilt and shame. We can see places where we've messed up in bringing the goodness of God to the world and say, you know what? I am dead to sin and I've been made alive to righteousness. And there is forgiveness where I've failed and hope for me to be equipped by the spirit to take the goodness of God into my community where we begin to do the hard work of forgiving people and enduring injustice, we can say, I have a hope because I have a savior that did that for me. I'm not doing this on my own. There are people who love me that will walk with me as I seek the Lord. And so as we come to worship today, we don't have to come with fear. We don't have to come with regret or shame. We can come today with joyful confidence and a God who loved us enough to send his son to die on the cross. And so as we do that, Let's prepare ourselves to be people that reflect the goodness of God to a very uncertain world. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. God, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard to understand, even when it's hard to obey, God, I just, I pray that you would help us to be obedient to who you've called us to be. Help us to be a people that reflect your goodness to a broken society. Show us the places where we can allow people to see who you are. Show us the places where we can build good relationships and enhance your reputation. Show us how we can forgive those who have been unjust to us. God, we just pray that you would be a God who is faithful and heals us where we're broken. As we come to you today, make us continually aware of who you have called us to be in the community that you have placed us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.